0: Okay. This morning we continue our study in ecclesiology by looking at the topic of the Church of Christ. Everybody got a handout? Raise your hand if you didn't get a handout. Will, if you can just get those for me. Thank you. Those are just some uh, points that we'll be hitting as we go along this, uh, this study this morning. You can see up at the top of your, your sheet there, I have a definition of the church that Wayne Grudem gives uh, that I found to be extremely helpful. By the way, if you don't have a systematic theology and you're looking for one, Wayne Grudem is very good. Uh, he's probably the easiest to understand. He writes at a very uh, low level, which I'm thankful for. Um, but that, that is a great one. So here's what Grudem has to say. The church is the community of all true believers for all time. Okay? The church is the is the community of all true believers for all time. Now, I think that's a very helpful definition and it helps us to understand that the church is to be made up of those who are truly saved, both believers in the New Testament age as well as believers in the Old Testament age. Now, this is really important, and it'll be a bit of review. If you've been coming to the class and you've been in, in particular, when Pastor Rick taught on the people of God, uh, this will be a bit of a, re- a review for us. But when we think about the Church of Christ, we want to be careful not to think of it as a distinct people as those who were saved in the Old Testament. And I think the Scriptures bear witness clearly. To that reality. While there are distinctions between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, there's not a distinction in the people of God. Okay? So that's very important, and I want to point to a few passages that will help you to see how God has viewed his people from Genesis all the way through, through Revel- Revelation. The proper way to see the church is as a continuation of the pattern established by God in the Old Testament, whereby he called the people to himself to be a worshiping assembly before him. And there are several indications. Pastor Rick went through a bunch of different passages on that. But I just want to call to your attention a few of those passages. So turn with me to Deuteronomy 4, and we're going to look at verse 10. Deuteronomy chapter 4. And verse 10. And I'm going to start about halfway down verse 10, where it says, Gather the people to me. Gather the people to me, that I may let them hear my words, so that they may learn to fear me all the days that they live on the earth and that they may teach their children so. Now, I hope when you read that passage, when you get into the New Testament, you see a lot of similarity between that statement and other statements that are made in the New Testament. And in particular, at the beginning, or, uh, at the beginning of the uh, passage that I read here in Deuteronomy 4.10, gather the people to me. If you remember, Pastor Rick talked about that being the Hebrew word kahal. Uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, translates that ecclesia, okay, which is the word that we use for church. And the point there is bringing together the called out ones of God. Bringing together the called out ones. Gathering them together. Okay? Fast forward now into the New Testament and go with me to Hebrews 10.25. If I can have somebody read actually verses 24 and 25 in Hebrews 10 I' just Okay, very, uh, very important passage there. In verse 25, gives us a really good insight into what we just read in Deuteronomy 4.10. That aspect of, don't neglect the assembling of yourselves together. This is what the Lord was speaking of. His people come together to worship Him, to encourage one another, to learn more about Him. Okay, so very important. So you see the same admonition given in the New Testament. Don't forsake that assembling together. Don't forsake that coming together as the people of God to worship him. So nothing has changed as far as that is concerned. Okay? The mode of it has changed, in other words, what that looks like, and we'll talk about that. But the actual coming together of the people of God has not changed. I want you to notice, keep in mind Hebrews ten twenty five, and I want you to see something that's very important as well in Second Thessalonians two, verse one. Second Thessalonians two. Verse 1. This is what we're looking forward to here. 2 Thessalonians 2.1. And if I can have somebody read that. That's okay, that's fine. It actually read more smoothly going all the way into verse 2, so thank you for picking up on that. I want you to notice in particular there in verse 1, now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, and, notice this, our being gathered together to him. That's the same Greek word that is used in Hebrews 10.25. So all of redemptive history is working toward this one goal, and that is being gathered together with the Lord. Okay? So when we gather together as his people now, this is just merely a shadow, a very strengthening and encouraging shadow of what is to come as we gather together to him on that day. Okay, So, Hebrews 10.25, 2 Thessalonians 2.1, that aspect of being gathered together. And this just reaches back to Deuteronomy 4.10. Okay, so, this is always what God has called his people to do. Gather together as my people to worship me. Why? Because that's what you're going to do at the end. And for all of eternity is gather together for that one time where we'll never have to break fellowship. There'll never be the going home aspect of it. Right? There'll never be this, oh man, the fellowship was so sweet, now we have to go back to whatever. Okay? That's not going to happen anymore on that day. So, really encouraging to see that Hebrews 10.25, that Second 2 Thessalonians 2.1, the same Greek word there, episunagoge, and sunagoge sounds like what word to us? Synagogue. Synagogue. Okay, synagogue, the gathering together of the people. Okay? So, very important to see that. So, it's not surprising, then, that you have New Testament authors that can speak of the Old Testament people of Israel as a church, as an ecclesia, as a called-out assembly. We see this uh, when Stephen gives that great redemptive historical outline in Acts chapter 7. Go ahead and turn with me there. We're going to be turning to a lot of scriptures, and the reason for that is because I made a PowerPoint, but it usually helps if you bring your computer with you when you make a PowerPoint, and my computer is sitting on my desk at home, so I realized that when I got here. Okay, so Acts chapter 7. And verse 38. And again, this is a bit of a review from what Pastor Rick went through. A lot of these passages he's already hit on, but I want you to see the similarity here. Okay? So Acts 7:38, and we can actually drop back to verse 37. So if somebody could read Acts 7:37 and 38. Okay, very good. So, beginning of 30, uh, verse 38 there, this is the one who was in the congregation. Okay, That's the word ekklesia. If you look that up in the Greek, that's what you'll see, the word ekklesia. Stephen's referring back to the Old Testament people of God here. Okay. So, again, you see this continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in reference to the people of God. Additionally, the author of Hebrews quotes Christ as saying that he would sing praise to God in the midst of the great assembly of God's people in heaven. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 2. The writer of Hebrews refers to Christ... In this passage, and this passage is taken from Psalm 22. Okay, so if you look with me at Hebrews 2, verse 12 says, I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, in the midst of the ecclesia, I will sing your praise. Okay, and again, this is reaching back to Psalm 22. So you have this aspect, again, of the Old Testament referring to the congregation, to the assembly, to the people who have been called out and called unto God. Another example that bears witness to this reality of this continuity between the Old Testament and New Testament people of God is seen in the fact that the author of Hebrews understands that the present-day Christians to whom he is writing, who constitute the church on earth to be surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Okay, so Hebrews 12, you remember that passage. And it, it reaches back, this great cloud of witnesses reaches back into the earliest eras of the Old Testament. All right, it includes people such as Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Gideon, Samson, David, Samuel, the prophets. Okay, when you come out of Hebrews 11, that hall of faith that we call it, and you come into Hebrews 12, the writer is reminding the present-day Christians of who you're in assembly with. He has this picture that these saints that have gone before you are up in the stands, so to speak. right? Because he's using this race terminology. And they're up in the stands. They're at rest. They have, they've entered into that. But you're, you're running. You have this cloud of witnesses around you. Cheering you on. That's the, the mentality there. Looking on you. Be faithful. Hold fast. Continue to the end. And he shows this connection. He doesn't say, yeah, these people back here, they were under, under the old covenant, so they don't really have anything to do with you. right?" He said, no, there's continuity between us and them. We are one people of God. In fact, later on in chapter 12 of Hebrews, the writer tells us that when we gather together to worship God, we come into the presence of the church Or the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Look with me at Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 23. If I can have somebody read that, Hebrews 12, verses 18 through 23. 23. 23. And yep.
1: to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect.
0: Go ahead and finish that.
1: And to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel.
0: Thank you. Will. Okay, notice verse 23. What we have come to, okay, so that's present, right? What we have come to, not what we will come to, but what we have come to. The assembly, and if you notice there, some of your Bibles may have a little number next to that, a little footnote down at the bottom, the church, okay to the Church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. Again, this is pointing back to all those saints that have gone before us, who, like we, by grace through faith, are in Christ. They looking forward to the promises that would be fulfilled in Christ, we looking back, to the promises that he has fulfilled. Okay, So there's this intimate connection that we have with them, because truly, we are one with them. All of us being the people that God has called unto himself, his church, his called-out ones, his congregation, his assembly, whatever terms Scripture uses to show the same truth. So even though there are certainly new privileges that are given to the people of God in the New Testament, which we'll look at in a bit, both the usage of the term church in Scripture and the fact that throughout Scripture God has always called his people to assemble, to worship himself, indicate that this is appropriate to think of the church as constituting all the people of God for all time, both Old Testament believers and New Testament believers, which I think is why I believe Grudem has a really concise, good definition when he talks about, talks about the church. Okay? Now, with that being said, and hopefully you've been able to see the continuity between the Old Testament people of God and the New Testament people of God, which are really just one people of God, I do want to look at the difference that is seen in Scripture. When we think back to the covenant that God made with Abraham, we are reminded that the promise was that through Abraham all nations would be blessed. Right? Genesis 12, you have that promise that is given there. From Abraham, you have the formation of the nation of Israel, the Old Testament people of God. Through Moses at Mount Sinai, they were given a covenant which was composed of laws and certain and precise regulations. For worship, the writer of Hebrews alludes to that as well. Now, there was always a remnant. Paul mentions that in Romans 11, about, about the nation of Israel. Right? You see, there was always a remnant within that nation. And periodically, you had righteous kings that would rise up and lead the nation. But by and large, the testimony about the nation of Israel is that they were a rebellious people who really failed at knowing God and at pointing the Gentiles to the greatness of who God is and being a blessing to them in that way. Think of the story of Jonah, for example. Let's take the gospel to the Gentiles. No, let's not take the gospel to the Gentiles, right? No, let's let's go the other direction. But as we enter the New Testament, we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of all the promises of God. Indeed, he is the true offspring of Abraham, who would be a blessing to all the nations. Okay? Take a look with me at Galatians chapter 3. This is a very important passage and understanding the covenant that God made with Abraham. Galatians chapter 3, and I just want to read with you verse 16. So if somebody could read that. Galatians 3 verse 16. Okay, very important. So you think back now to the, the promise that God makes with Abraham. And what does Paul say here? It was to his seed. It was to his offspring, not to his offsprings or to his seeds, referring not to many, but to one, to Christ. So Christ himself is the seed of Abraham. He is the true offspring of Abraham, who would be a blessing All the nations. Another way that you see this phrased in the scripture is that another title that God uses or another term that God uses in the Old Testament for Israel was his son. He refers to Israel as his son. However, Israel failed to live up to that title. So, Matthew, in his gospel, is inspired to write about who the true Son of God really is. Not Israel, but Jesus. Okay, look with me at Matthew chapter 2, verses 13 through 15. Okay, right after the birth of Christ... If I can have somebody read Matthew 2 verses 13 through 15. Now, that's really important. Keep your finger there in Matthew 2 and go with me to Hosea chapter 11. Hosea, Joel, Amos. I always have to do that because I I forget. I'm like, where, where is this again? So I try to say it out loud so I can... Okay, so this is what is being referred to here. Notice this. Hosea 11, verse 1. Somebody read that for us. Okay, very good. Do you see see that? When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt, I called my son. So, this is where we look at this and we say, Israel is being referred to as the Son, as God's Son, right? God refers to him that way. But, was this truly about Israel? It was about the true Israel, who is Christ. So, God causes this to happen. He puts it, right. the heart of Herod is such that he wants to kill Jesus, and God says, go to Egypt, so that, notice here at verse 15 in uh, Matthew 2, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. God specifically said, go to Egypt. I have a prophecy I'm about to fulfill. And out of Egypt, I called my son, referring to Christ. Okay, so really important to see that. What we see from both the Galatians 3 passage about Christ being the true offspring of Abraham, and then here in Matthew 2 about Christ being the true Son of God, what we see from these passages is that what Israel, the Old Testament people of God, failed to do, Jesus accomplished. Jesus accomplished. When Jesus comes into the world, if you remember what's said in John chapter 1, he came unto his own, but what happened? They just embraced them and said, man, this is it. He's the king. <laughs> nope, right? He came unto his own, but his own did not receive him or received him not. So as a whole, Israel rejected their Messiah. Okay, so let me just kind of catch up where we are at this point and when we think about the Church of Christ. Okay, so we look at the Old Covenant. We look at God's covenant with the, the nation of Israel. We see them as generally a rebellious people, although there was always a remnant. Okay? If you remember the story of Elijah, I'm the only one left. No, I've got 7,000 that haven't bowed the knee to Baal. Okay? So there was a remnant. But as a whole, they rejected the Lord. The Messiah shows up, they reject him. And then, out of Israel, Jesus chooses a handful of nobodies. First Corinthians one twenty six through thirty one style, right? Take a look around, brothers, not many noble, not many right. And through these men he creates a new Israel, a new people of God, which in Matthew sixteen, Jesus calls his church. So turn with me to Matthew sixteen, and I want to read with you verses 13 through 19. Now, as we kind of look more specifically at the church of Christ. Okay, if I can have somebody read that, Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19. thank you what's important to see in this passage many things important to see but is that peter makes this foundational statement as the spokesman for the rest of the apostles and jesus completely affirms this statement peter nails it he gets it right on and jesus says to him but you didn't come up with this on your own peter this wasn't your own wisdom this wasn't your own observation my father in heaven has revealed this to you. He then goes on to tell them that the authority of the kingdom is given to them. You notice that? In verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, you think about these men whom God called unto himself. These fishermen, these tax collectors, right? And Jesus says, I'm giving you the authority. Now that in and of itself would have been a startling statement because the Pharisees and the chief elders were the ones who were thought to have this authority. And yet Jesus, with one statement, so to speak, rips it out of their hands and gives it to his apostles. So Peter and the other apostles stand as the chosen representatives of the new covenant. Guys, I'm going to do this. Through Now well, that would have been a bit overwhelming. So Christ gathers these men and establishes Israel anew to confess his name. And this is a concept that you see scripture affirming. In particular, the Apostle Paul recognizes this in Ephesians 2.20, that the church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets. It's built upon that foundation, these men... We're to be the chosen representatives. And we see here in Matthew 16 that Christ will build his church in the power of his kingdom. He gives the keys of kingdom authority to his apostles. Before this event in Matthew 16, you may remember in Matthew 10, Jesus had already sent them out as heralds of this kingdom with authority to teach and heal and cast out demons in his name. And I remember, he also told them, if, if people don't receive this message, shake off the dust of your feet as a testimony against them. Any house, any city that would not receive them, they were to act in that way. So the keys that were given opened the kingdom to individuals, households, or cities that received the gospel message, but closed it to those who, who rejected the Lord of the kingdom. I mean, this was serious. These guys are giving authority that relates to eternal matters here. And the reason for that is because their authority did not shape the kingdom or compose its laws. He didn't leave it to them and just say, Okay, guys, I'm going to leave this up to you and... Whatever you guys decide, that's fine. Go ahead and, and do that. Right? This wasn't an authority that they had in and of themselves. The, kingdom, the, the keys of the kingdom weren't given to them, just like we would receive blank keys and just say, okay, fashion this however you want it. Right? No, so Christ gave specifically through his authority. The authority was Christ. They bore his words. They pronounced his judgments and his blessings. That's why when he sent them out, if you remember, he said, hey, if they reject you... They're rejecting me. If they don't receive your words, it's because they don't receive my words. God, you're not going out on your own. I'm sending you out as my ambassadors for my kingdom. And praise the Lord, we have been given the same privilege to be ambassadors for Christ, going into the world and proclaiming his kingdom. So you have this shift that is taking place with these new representatives forming the true Israel, the true people of God, having been given the authority of the Messiah himself. Now, a passage that makes this really clear is in Matthew 21. So go ahead and turn there with me. Matthew 21. It's in a parable that Jesus tells. This aspect here of this shifting of this authority. Matthew 21. At the beginning of Matthew 21, you have Jesus' triumphal entry. Okay, so we're getting close now to the end of the life of Christ here. And notice what he says here in Matthew 21, and I want to go ahead and read this, verses 33 through 46. Okay, Follow along with me. Here another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? Isn't amazing how Jesus just takes these? What do you think, guys? What will the owner do here? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. And This is like a Nathan-David Nathan type of interaction here that you have going on. Watch this. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become this cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it is marvelous in our eyes. Now notice verse 43. This is huge. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. Wow. Unfortunately, the chief priests and the Pharisees did not have the same response that David did when he was confronted by Nathan, confessing his sin and turning away from that. But verse 43 is so pivotal in this parable the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. Now, I just want to walk you through this parable so you can see what Jesus is getting at here. Not every parable tells a story like this in the sense that you can see a lot of what Jesus is saying here. A lot of them are just kind of obscure people, just kind of out in the area, but he specifically targets people in this parable. Okay? The vineyard that Jesus is referring to here is the nation of Israel and is described in language taken from Isaiah 5 verses 1 through 7, which actually I do want us to turn to because I want you to see when the religious leaders, when the, when the people who had the scriptures, when they heard it, they would have thought, man, this sounds a lot like Isaiah. Okay? So turn with me to Isaiah chapter 5. Want you to look with me at verses one through seven. Isaiah five verses one through seven. Can I have somebody read that for us? Isaiah five verses one through seven? Very, very clear. When you read through that parable in Matthew 21, and you look at what Isaiah said here in Isaiah 5, I mean, the similarities are just amazing. Right? So there would have definitely been that awareness in the people's minds, and I think Jesus, when he gets to the end of this parable and starts unpacking it, he shows clearly who, he, who it is that he is talking about. The owner of this vineyard in Matthew 21 is God. The tenants are the religious leaders of Israel. The servants who are sent to gather the fruit are the prophets, and the son of the owner is none other than Jesus himself. Through this parable, Jesus was foretelling his death and his hearers and how he would be treated in the near coming future. If you notice here, he says that he would be thrown out of the vineyard and killed. The son would be thrown out of the vineyard and killed, and that came to pass as he was taken outside Jerusalem and crucified. Now, because of this rejection of Jesus, which, as you saw in this parable, came as the climax of a long series of rejections of the prophets that God had sent to it, the old Israel would forfeit the right to receive the blessings that pertained to the kingdom of God. So, from you, Jesus says, the kingdom of God will be taken away. That special standing that they had in the eyes of God, that they had enjoyed under the old covenant, was being stripped from them. And why? Because they rejected the Messiah and killed him. So in the place of the old covenant people, there would arise, as was already happening, a people producing the fruit of the kingdom. Remember when John the Baptist sees the religious leaders coming, right? don't, don't presume to say to me that you have fa- uh, Abraham as your father. Right? God is able to raise up from these stones children for Abraham. And then he tells them, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So in other words, whatever your profession may be, your life is completely contradicting it. And so Christ promises here that there would be a people producing the fruit of the kingdom. Indeed, as we see in the rest of scripture, a church international. Made up of both Jews and Gentiles, which would constitute the true Israel of God. You see Paul alluding to this, again, frequently in his epistles. You see this, and you can jot this down because I'm kind of running out of time here, but Ephesians chapter 2, I encourage you to go there and read verses 11 through 22. Let me just see how much I have left here, actually. I'm going to come back to that if time permits, because that's a really important passage. And then going on into chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Especially in that passage, when you read that, you have to understand what a shock it was that the Gentiles are included as heirs of the kingdom of God. It was a shocking thing. Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 3, and he says, This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. I'm like, What? you I mean, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. Well, you should have known this. Let's go back to the promises that God gave, right? It shouldn't have been that revelatory, but that the teaching had gotten so far away from that, and they had this perception that no, it's just for us. And Paul says, "Nope, the Gentiles are in." And then he says, "This it was not revealed to the sons of past generations, as it has now been revealed to us." So, in other words, as Revelation continued to progress. Greater light came upon the reality of what this was going to look like, that the Gentiles were being brought into the kingdom. You also see this in Galatians 3, 26-29, which I think I have down on your notes there. And again, if you remember, one of the arguments brought up by the Jews during the time of Christ was, we are the children of Abraham, in particular in John chapter 8. You have the religious leaders arguing that point. And Jesus said, if you were truly the children of Abraham, you would do what Abraham did, but you're not. You're actually, your father is the devil. That would have been a shocking statement (laughs) for them to hear. They thought that their physical connection with Abraham was all they needed in order to be considered the people of God. However, Jesus and his apostles make it very clear that your physical connection means nothing. Are you connected to Christ by the Spirit of God, Paul says in Galatians chapter 3? If so, then you are a true child of Abraham. Then you really are a child of Abraham. So from that time on, God continues on this mission of gathering together a people, a church, As we read in Revelation from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. Gathering together all those that he has elected before the foundation of the world. Alright, so um, I want to spend the last few minutes here mentioning the distinctiveness between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Because what Christ has done changes how we relate to God as opposed to our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. Okay, So as Pastor Jack mentioned last week when he was talking about the continuity and discontinuity in Scripture, one of the things that we were looking at in this lesson is the continuity. As you see, there has always been a people of God who are connected by faith, right? by grace through faith. There is no distinction there, but there is a distinction or discontinuity in how we relate to God, how God has structured that under the Old Covenant and under the New Covenant. Again, it's always been by grace through faith, so that relation doesn't change. But because we live on this side of redemptive history, we want to see how Christ has fulfilled the promises of God and what that means for us. So first, you can see on your notes there, the place of worship has changed. Okay? Where did God commune with his people under the old covenant? Good, the temple, right? The tabernacle while they were traveling? But the temple was the place where the people met with God. So God set those regulations up and told the people that this is how he was to be worshipped in this way. However, under the new covenant, Christ is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and the temple. In Jesus, God came to dwell among his people. The Gospel of John identifies Christ as the true tabernacle where the glory of God is Revealed. If you remember from John chapter 1, you can turn there with me real quick. John chapter 1 and verse 14. John chapter 1 verse 14. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and tabernacled among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So you have Christ, the true tabernacle. Regarding the temple, it definitely had its place in the history of redemption. It depicted God's dwelling on earth. Also in the Gospel of John, Jesus called the temple his Father's house, if you remember, and he cleansed it. But with Christ came the reality. And the temple became a passing figure. If you remember in John chapter 2, sticking here, in verse 18, the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Verse 19 here in John 2, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you'll raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. Very important to remember that. Okay? So Christ is the true temple. One of the clearest examples of this, I think, is seen in Jesus' conversation with the woman at the well. In that conversation, the woman asked, where does worship truly happen? Remember that question that she asked? Where does it happen? Was it where the Samaritans worshipped on Mount Gerizim? Or was it in Jerusalem? Right? Remember, she asked that question. Our fathers worshipped here. You say that worship takes place there, Jesus. Where, where, what is it? if you remember, Jesus responded to that by essentially saying, The hour is coming and is now here, where neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. The true worship takes place where the Father is worshipped in spirit and in truth. So, um, that would have been a startling statement. Because you would think a prophet absolutely at the temple in Jerusalem. That's where the worship of God takes place. And Jesus says, the hour is coming, woman, and actually is now here. Where true worship takes place, where the Father is worshipped in spirit and in truth. So the hour that Jesus is referring to here is the hour of his death and resurrection. That hour changed everything. The function of the temple ended with the death of Christ. You imagine walking into that. You remember what the scriptures teach? That, that veil that separated the holy place from the holy of holies was torn in two from top to bottom. And that is signifying it's open. Through Christ, it's open. You can come into the presence of God and live coming through Christ. So, that is one function one difference between the Old Covenant people of God and the New Covenant people of God. We don't go to a temple to commune with God. We go to Christ, the true temple of God. Secondly, the mode of worship has changed. Right? We no longer bring animals to sacrifice, as God's people did under the Old Covenant. And the reason for that, why? Christ himself is our sacrifice. Look with me at Hebrews ten as we bring this to a to a close. Hebrews chapter ten. And let's read verses one through fourteen. If I could have somebody read the first seven verses, and then somebody pick up at verse eight and read down through verse fourteen. Okay, who would take verses one through seven? Will, and then who would take eight Des Thanks, eight through fourteen? Amen. What a great passage. So that is how we are cleansed. Is through that one atoning work. We don't bring animals to a temple any longer. We go to Christ. And now, as Paul says in Romans 12, 1, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. Right? Holy, acceptable God. This is our spiritual worship. We bring ourselves to God and we just say, all of us, Lord, take it and use it for the sake of your great name. So we are the church of Christ, connected with all those who from the foundation of the world by faith have trusted in the promises of God. Either the promises that were pointing forward to the coming of Christ and His work, or the promises that point back to all that Christ has accomplished and what God has prepared for all those who are called His own. And listen, we wait for that day, don't we? To join all the church, all the saints from all around the world in jubilant, perpetual Praise to our God, gathered together as his people, worshiping him perfectly for all of eternity. And to that we say, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We are so grateful, Lord, that in your mercy you have called us out of darkness into your marvelous light where we behold the glory of your Son. And Father, the more we see of him, the more we want to see. And so I pray that you would grant us the desire of our hearts to grow in grace and in the knowledge of him as we wait for that day where you will bring us into your presence with all your people as one church, as we are here on earth so perfected there in heaven. Lord, help us to be diligent in our proclamation of the gospel, calling out to all who would hear, Father. And we know that you have ordained that some would have ears to hear what the Spirit says. So help us to be faithful in that. And Lord, I pray that we would truly bear the marks of the Church of Christ, that we would be a unified people around the gospel of our King. And so we thank you for that, Lord. Pray that you would bless our time now as we move into the service. Pray for Pastor Arnie again, that you would give him grace as he preaches your word. in all things, Lord, that you would be honored and praised. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen.